Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Doug Kelbot to talk about his book, The Urban Fix, Resilient Cities and the War Against Climate Change, Heat Islands, and Overpopulation. Doug is an affiliate professor of architecture and urban planning at the University of Washington in Seattle, as well as a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and the Congress of New Urbanism. Doug, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Okay, well, I've uh, since I graduated from Princeton University with an undergrad and grad degree, I was an architect primarily initially with an office in Princeton, New Jersey. Then I moved to Seattle to be chair of the architecture department and slowly became more of an academic, less of a practitioner, then dean at the College of Architecture and Urban Planning, University of Michigan. Then I retired about three weeks ago and uh, from Michigan and now I moved back to Seattle where I have family. Um, written a number of books, edited a number of books over the years, spoken, oh my God, to 70 schools of architecture and hundreds of conferences online and in person and uh, what else is of relevance. Um, I designed a lot of buildings, including ones that won about 20 design awards, competitions, etc. but not so much recently. I'm mainly a writer now including this book you already announced. Um, that's probably enough. Uh, uh, very, very interesting. And so, yeah, so we'll just jump right in then. And so we're at, I know the book is actually very positive for kind of the subject matter, but I do want to kind of highlight a somewhat harrowing statistic, and that is you mentioned in 1987, you know, fossil fuel usage made up about 81% of the, of the consuming and then 30 years later, it hasn't changed. It's still at 81%. And so that's a somewhat dismal statistic, in my opinion. 
And so, you know, I was wondering if you could elaborate. No, that was in 2017. Yeah. It's only been three years. Has there been any improvement or are we still in that same? No, it's about the same. So in a third of a century, we really haven't cut fossil fuel usage. Part of that's because of population increase, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, during the course of this conversation. Um, but, you know, despite the increase in renewables, there's still just a lot of fossil fuel use. For instance, air conditioning is still growing like mad all over the planet. That uses electricity, which is usually produced by fossil fuels. We are way down in coal use for the production of electricity. That is good news. Far less coal, but still lots of, and, and less and less oil, but still lots of natural gas. Um Renewables are growing as their costs come down, but and they are making an impact, a significant impact. But it's a it's a long, hard road ahead. Absolutely. And so now we can kind of talk about where you kind of what you present and kind of the outline of how we'll probably follow this as well as the book. You present these four dots, the first three being challenges, and then the fourth being something that was seen as a challenge, but you propose is actually part of the solution. Those, you know, the first three being climate change, urban heat islands, and unsustainable population growth. But what's interesting is the fourth is the idea of the city itself, which I think in a lot of people's mind have a negative view of cities, whereas you explain that they're actually the, the solution, not the problem. Right. Well, dots is an understatement. I, I use it only to use the phrase connecting the dots because we have to connect all four of these. Um. The first one, climate change, by far the biggest challenge ever to face humanity. The planet has seen bigger challenges, but not human civilization. Um, much bigger deal than any plague we've ever had or whatever. Um, the urban heat islands, we'll talk about in detail, I'm sure, later. That's a local phenomenon as opposed to climate change, which is global. Population growth, as you know, the planet's still growing, although birth rates are dropping dramatically, but that takes a while to have its impact. But your final point, which is a major point of the book, is that the city is our last best hope for lots of problems, including climate change. They are positive. And why, in a nutshell, when people move to cities, their eco-footprint, their energy footprint, their carbon footprint goes down. I can explain why now or later, but overall, the impact is positive. Absolutely. That would be a great time because, you know, I know it's part of the quote unquote American dream, you know, moving to a nice large house in the suburbs. And the reality is those suburbs are doing way more damage than the city. And I think a lot of people would be interested to hear why is that? Yeah, I mean, suburbs are much worse. You live in single family houses with lots of wall surfaces and windows to to lose heat, which makes heating uh, more expensive and even air conditioning more expensive in the summer. Mm -hmm. You drive a lot more, you own more cars, there's more paving um, right. per capita, uh, a more rooftop, a more you name it. It's just very excessive. It's an American invention that unfortunately we've exported all over the world. Many. <laughs> Countries have, have actually been sort of copying it. But, you know, now the smarter developing countries are looking to Europe rather than America for the model. Mm -hmm. Europe being much more urban. 
So anyway, why are cities better? Well, when you move to a city, A, you live in a smaller unit. Often it shares a wall, a floor, or a ceiling with other units if you're in multifamily housing or if you're in a townhouse. Uh, You own fewer cars. You drive less because you walk more. You bike more. I hardly drive at all here in Seattle. I either bike or walk or take my e-bike. I'll be going later this afternoon to the grocery store with my e-bike. So transportation is less, you know, more transit, although bus just passed the window. Unfortunately, more and more buses are empty because of the pandemic, but that's temporary. Mm -hmm. So transportation, energy use is less, heating, cooling, lighting is less. Actually, lighting can sometimes be higher, but generally utility costs are less um, and less carbon production. Uh, Transportation, how you build where you live, um, how you live uh, are all positive. I mean, and the other news is you have fewer kids when you live in the city, which deals with that third problem, population growth. Absolutely. And before we kind of maybe segue into those other ones, you know, you had mentioned that we have a long road. It is the toughest battle. And I know when you speak to a lot of people, there has been, as you mentioned, you know, renewables, there has been a lot of good news and improvements But kind of the reality, and I'll use a quote right from the book, you know, even if carbon was completely removed tomorrow, we have still done enough damage that it's not it's not enough. We actually have to adapt as well. Absolutely. In fact, we cannot um, reverse climate change. We can't even stop it, but we can slow it down. I mean, there's so much carbon up there already baked into the system is a lot of climate change. It's going to get a lot hotter. Our kids and our grandkids are going to live very challenging lives. Or my generation, I'm 75, will do fine. But <laughs> it's it's def, it, it's baked in. It's, it's not reversible. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't slow it down. And how do we slow it down? By changing our personal behavior personal behaviors and our and our collective behavior by, you know, driving less, eating local food more, living in smaller units, flying less. I read this morning that there are people flying airplanes that take off and land in the same airport because they're addicted to flying. And some airlines are I was not aware of that. Accommodating that yet shocking. I literally just learned that this morning. Um <laughs> So we got to change our personal lifestyles and collective where we have to change. Americans have by far the biggest carbon or eco or, mm-hmm. or environmental footprint on the planet, with the exception of maybe Dubai, which I lived in for a couple of years. We can talk about that if you want. Absolutely. But, but it's very, very high. And uh, Europeans who live very well, I think, as well or better than we do have well, I don't know, eco footprints about 40% the size of our, no, 40% less and right? getting better at a faster rate because not only of renewables, but, you know, better transportation systems, more walkable lifestyles, et cetera. Absolutely. And, you know, you had kind of hinted at this before. And so you know, the benefits of living in the city in terms of your eco footprint, you know, there's plenty, you went into detail on a few, but there does kind of leave something that the cities then have to, they dealt with, and that is your second point, and part of all this connecting of the dots, and that is the urban heat island effect. You know, if you could elaborate a little more on maybe some of the viewers yeah. who might not be familiar well, with that. Cities 
are getting hotter much faster than their suburbs or their rural countryside. Um, mainly because of a lot more heat coming out of tailpipes and um, chimneys, which tend to be more urban than rural. Um, but also because there's a lot of paving and a lot of dark roofs, all, both of which absorb solar radiation and then radiate heat back to the local climate and local. So cities are, you know, 10, 12, 15 degrees hotter than their rural hinterland. Uh, it's really a problem because we want people to live in cities for reasons I just explained. Mm-hmm. And the hotter they get, you know, it discourages some people from moving there. But uh, there are ways to deal with the urban heat island we'll talk about, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, and you, when I read this, you know, as an architect, whenever I read on this subject, there's a lot of policy issues and politics. And, you know, as an architect, it's a little overwhelming because, you know, what is the answer? Whereas when it comes to urban heat island, you know, there is a very much an architectural response and that, you know, yeah, no, that's a good point you make. It is more available to us as architects and planners, urban designers. Um, well, there's dealing with so-called urban canyons. Uh, yes. You know, the taller the buildings, the narrower the street, the more heat that's collected uh, within that canyon. And we can widen the streets and shorten the buildings. We can have lighter colored surfaces on the building which bounces more light back out of the canyon as well as lighter colored pavements, both walking Mm -hmm. and driving. Um, So those are design issues, but, you know, obviously designing buildings to be more efficient is something we need to do. Um, And that affects climate change, not just uh, urban heat island. Um, So, we can plant more trees. We'll talk a lot about trees. I'm sure they're really important. Um, design better transit systems. Absolutely. Best planners. You you mentioned urban canyons, and you know every whenever I read the books, I always talk about it with other people. And I know the idea that urban canyons are kind of detrimental. It seems to actually throw a lot of people. I think the mentality most people associate shade with cooler. Yeah, the rea- but you know, you kind of mentioned that the reality is when you have these urban canyons forced by tall buildings on both ends. Yeah, yeah, there might be shade there, but that's actually a very warm, unpleasant space. Right. We can't, of course, give up um, buildings. Say the height of Paris. Paris is a great example. Sort of seven, eight-story buildings can work if the streets are reasonably wide. Ideally, the boulevard or streets about as wide as the buildings are high, a one-to-one ratio. Um, but and we'll have cities with higher buildings for sure. Uh, there'll be some heat islands, but not if the street walls aren't continuous. If the if the high rises pop up, um, they they can be set back from the street wall. The higher parts of buildings, as they do in Vancouver, um, but the high rises don't have, all have to line up along the street. I mean, they can not only be set back, but they can be interspersed. They don't have to be on every building. So high rises, there's a place for high rises. It's just in the center of the block and not every block. Right. Um, so that's good news because we, we want density for all the reasons I talked about. Um, what was the other part of the question? 
Uh, just the so not only you know so the air you know those urban canyons they're unpleasant, but there is almost the financial benefit as well. I, th- I think you quote that you know Florida spends four hundred million dollars in additional air conditioning costs just because of these these canyons created. Well, yeah, and it's even worse in places like India, which is adding <laughs> air conditioning so fast you can't believe it. In fact, um. These air conditioners, I have a slide, a famous slide of Singapore, which is just five, six story, seven story buildings with air conditioners popping out of every unit. And right. all that cool air that's pumped into buildings means hot air is pumped into the streets. Right. The street cleans get even hotter because of air conditioners. <laughs> so air conditioning is a bit of a problem. Natural ventilation using fans is infinitely more efficient in terms of energy consumption than air conditioning. Air conditioning is not only a problem because of all the electricity to run it, but the refrigerants, the chemistry mm-hmm. of air conditioners are dangerous. In fact, leaking chemicals out of air conditioners is arguably the single biggest cause of climate change right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, the Air conditioning is a nasty system. I'm happy to say, Although we have heat pumps in our house, we hardly ever use air conditioning. We bought a bunch of fans. They work just fine. Now, it's not that hot in Seattle. Those of you who live in, in hotter parts of the U.S. may have to use air conditioning part of the year. But more shade on your house. We'll talk about shade trees um, and more natural ventilation, more fans can get you through most of the cooling season. Uh, Absolutely, you can cut air conditioning uh, in hot, humid places uh, considerably by using these other techniques, and in hot, arid places, uh, it's even easier to deal um, with heat in the summer. Absolutely, and that kind of puts the impetus back on the architects and planners. You know, as easy as it is to rely and throw money at nicer mechanical systems, orientation and natural strategies need to be part of the initial discussion. Absolutely. As they have been for many, many years. (laughs) I mean, that's the way traditionally buildings were cooled um, with natural ventilation, including very clever courtyard schemes where air is brought in low and then it goes up and out the courtyard and ventilates the whole building. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off absolutely and you had you specifically mentioned india and i'd like to use this as a segue 
you you have a, a very great picture in the book about with all the with all the inclusions of these new air conditioning systems. You know, some of the pavement is literally melting in those cases. That's right. Yeah. Kind of, oh, yeah. No, no, you keep going. And that uh, that led me to think. You know, when you mentioned you know buildings are getting taller, density is increasing, it's not being thought out. Well, the first thing that came to my mind was kind of the city most architects are familiar with, Dubai. And you had mentioned you had lived there. Yeah. I mean, can you maybe give us, I know you can't explain your entire time well, I mean, there. But it was a weird job. I After I stepped down as dean, I was a bit of lost what to do. And my former partner and good friend, Peter Calthor, was doing work in Dubai and said, you want to go to, to Dubai? I said, are you kidding? Dubai? No way. But I went over and it was interesting. And we, we didn't enjoy the first year much, but the second year we did. And it's totally crazy. Uh, more towers and cranes uh, than anything right? on the planet building high rises many of which are not occupied they're simply investments for wealthy muslims from all over the muslim world who don't trust their banks and how they invest their capital they put it in high rises and they like to do it in dubai because it's pretty stable relatively mm-hmm. speaking very stable in the middle east and so all these towers, a lot of them are empty and never will be filled. They're just sitting there. Yeah, right. Yeah, as, as sort of um, ways to store um, capital. Um, and it's totally auto-dependent. Nobody walks. We used to bike a bit, and we were the only people biking. It's very hot, of course. So there's a lot of air conditioning, and it's humid. It's, it gets arid 40, 50 miles inland. But it's on the coast there. It's very humid. So a lot of a, a lot of air conditioning and a lot of desalinated water. All the water is desalinated out of the really? Persian Gulf. Uses an immense amount of energy and keeps pumping even saltier water back into the Persian Gulf, which makes desalination even harder. Mm. It's a totally wrong place to build a city of two million people um, because of the lack of fresh water the heat, uh, the fact that everything has to be shipped in. All the food comes in from elsewhere. They don't grow any food to speak of. Um, It's, yeah, the only way to get there is by basically flying. It's it's a mistake. And uh, living there underscored it for me. Um, Not a lot of trees, although they are doing their best to plant trees. it's it's an example of how how not to do it. That's um, a very interesting insight. I, I don't think, at least me personally, I don't think that image of empty towers is what's projected. I think a much more yeah, positive well, image. Yeah, a lot of towers are occupied, but a lot of them are not, or they're right. occupied partially. Right. Um, maybe the lower stories. I'm not even sure they fully finished the upper stories. But, um, yeah, most people don't realize that. They also don't realize that there's no sewer system and oh, really? that all those towers, including the tallest building in the world, have their sewer uh, sewage driven by giant tanker trucks out to a dump where they Thanks. line up for miles waiting to dump their sewage. Uh, there's no sewage system. It's just, a, in many ways, a very crude city. Um, again, getting it wrong on so many levels. Absolutely. I wasn't aware of that either. It is a big tourist center. They make their money. It's a big airport. It's a big mm-hmm. port, a big seaport. 
in a big tourist city. And it's a financial, because it's more stable, it's a financial center for the Middle East. So it keeps going. I went back a couple of years ago and there's still towers. They're still building. Uh, it's still, even though there's a big setback after the, what was it, the Arab Spring or whatever it was called, and the economy was set back pretty bad uh, after 2009 and then later in the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, I was surprised how well it's doing. I was really surprised how well, I mean, how, how economically robust it is despite all these handicaps. Absolutely. And so, you know, Dubai has plenty of issues that you've done a great, great job detailing of, of things that could be done better. I think one that comes to mind and that we go into much more detail in the book is the idea of, you know, sprawl. I know you said you used your book, your bike, but I can't imagine many others are using their bikes. Well, actually in Seattle, there's a lot of biking. Is that right? Uh, there are a lot of bike, even though it's hilly, there are a lot of sort of bike paths and trails and I bike a lot and uh, they're jammed. In fact, on the weekends, I wouldn't even go on the major East-West Trail, and there's too many people with COVID. It's, you know, it's not so cool. But um, a lot of biking here, a lot of biking in Ann Arbor, the two cities I know most mm-hmm. from recent residents. And um, I I don't know, probably not in Rochester. It's pretty cold there. But I know, I think some people on this Listen to this, live in cities where biking is on the upsurge. In fact, it was hard to buy bikes in Seattle for a while. Well, and you had mentioned that, you know, of all the benefits of living in a city and how it lowers your eco footprint, one idea, you know, and I don't have the exact number, but you, you state that people are willing to walk much further or bike in a city versus a low density area like a suburb. Yeah. It doesn't they, matter. They bike further and more frequently and and do errands on bikes particularly now when it's grocery shopping as i said i need an, an e-bike because a it happens to be a hilly trip there and back but b i can't carry food on my on my street or road bike of any significance um so it's good to have an e-bike much much more efficient than an automobile they're big, e-bikes are big here in seattle because it's hilly and they make e-bikes here um, I recommend them. Uh, you see e-bikes in Rochester? You know, I personally do not. I, I won't well, say that, won't say that they're be, not out there, but. <laughs> well, it's colder. That's part of the problem. Even today, it'll be a little chilly on my e-bike here in Seattle. But um, it's, um, I've lost track. Uh, where are we? Probably transportation, well, we just, oh, the it, suburbs, or, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea that, you know, it's maybe it's not a strict architectural intervention, more maybe of a planning, but the idea that we have to have a much better, you know, transit-oriented design. We need to focus more on, in fact, I'll take a quote right out of the book. You had mentioned that, you know, we need to focus on lowering our travel time, but we need to do it by increasing our network, not by increasing our speed of travel. Right. Right. Shorter trips and you have a much more complex network in the city. As Jane Jacobs wrote years ago in the Life and Death of Great American City, she walked talked about shorter blocks and more walkability and better transit way back Absolutely. fifty years ago now almost. Um her first book anyway. So I um the ideas of gained real traction all over the world, people now realize. I agree. These benefits. And so kind of the 
the other side of that double-edged sword, you know, you had you you do actually make a good case on how you know this transit-oriented design is it's picking up steam. It's not a very industry-specific. Other people are kind of picking it up now, but there's kind of this technological advance on the horizon that I hear about every day, and that you I'd like to elaborate a little more. And the idea of driverless automatic cars. Yeah, um, let's talk about that because I I'm living in Ann Arbor near Detroit. And at a big research university, which is really the center of research for autonomous vehicles, mm-hmm. I know a little bit about them. And I can tell you they're a little further off than anybody realizes. Is that right? Yeah. they, Except in dedicated lanes. We're going to see dedicated lanes okay. with autonomous vehicles, particularly collective ones, little vans and bigger buses. And whether they're linked together or separate and some are going to be express and some more local and so on. We're going to see autonomous vehicles as large as buses, as small as little taxis, where you have a dedicated lane, dedicated curb space where you get in and out of them. So it's highly organized in linear cities like the one Peter Calthorpe's planning from uh, San Francisco down to San Jose. Very good project showing how this is all linked together. But uh, autonomous vehicles on the open road is going to be a long time. They, they they can get about 80%, 90% of the problems solved, but that last 10%, you know, the stray dog that runs out in front of your car and all that, they can't deal with that stuff. So I wouldn't hold your breath on autonomous vehicles in sprawl, but you will see it more, more in corridors, which are, of course, urban corridors. Um although the urban corridor from San Francisco to San Jose goes through, you know, Palo Alto and, and less dense areas that he's densifying along the corridor with these walkable TODs. He's the guy who coined the term TOD, Transoriented Development, Peter Calthorpe, but it was after a charrette, a design workshop we did at University of Washington called the Pedestrian Pocket Charrette, which resulted in a little national best-selling book in urban design called the Pedestrian Pocket Book. But later... Uh, Peter thought the term was a little too cute and changed it to TOD. <laughs> now every planner of every city in the world knows what a TOD is. A TOD Absolutely. Is. Well, so that's an interesting take on the driverless cars. So I guess from my understanding, you're saying that it's it's not going to be every person has one. It's more of a urban transport yeah, no, method. Yeah, they'll be collective that you won't own them. Gotcha. Unless... No, you really won't. If you do, you won't use it. It's uh, too dangerous. <laughs> now, you do make the case, though, that, you know, if when things become more convenient, pe- people might be willing, you know, people are willing to drive further, for example, because, ga- you know, gas has gone lower, vehicles are different. I think that actually had a term. I think you called it the, the rebound, Jevons paradox. Jevons paradox, the rebound. But, yeah, as cars get more efficient, what do people do? They tend to drive them more. You know, the miles per gallon goes up, often vehicle miles traveled goes up. Not always, but, and not in cities, but and that's a general trend. That's an economic law, not a natural law. Um, and it applies to anything where there's price involved. That's why it's an economic law. It's only because it's, it's a price sensitive issue, like the cost of gasoline, but it I doesn't see. apply to natural phenomenon. Um, at least typically it doesn't. So uh, Jevon's paradox and the rebound effect isn't as terminal as it may sound. Well, that's interesting. But I guess in that same vein, 
you actually hinted at this earlier that you know when someone moves to the city, the birth rate's lower, and that's I believe you call it the population paradox. Is that the same idea of is that a kind of a more of a natural event or more of a economic event? It's more of an economic event. What happens when the rural migrants in India and China, which in massive numbers are moving to cities, when they move there, their their wealth goes up dramatically. So their eco footprint goes up pretty fast. They have more money and they buy more things and so on. But it turns out their birth rate drops fast, fast enough that it more than compensates for the rise in consumption. So even in, in these fast-growing Asian cities, uh, the eco-footprint per capita is better in the city than in the countryside, where they're very poor. They're even better in the city, mainly because they have um, fewer kids. Well, and that's a very interesting point. Again, I know, you know kind of the central thesis is living in the city is the most beneficial for the environment. You had mentioned the idea of you know people living in the country are poor, too, you know. And I believe there's a quote from I, I might mispronounce this Yuval Harari regarding you know even though there was this trend of people moving to the suburbs, the reality is more poor people actually live in suburbs than the cities, and yet it's actually harder to be less financially set in the suburb as it is to be in the city. Yeah, this is a problem. Uh, as cities have become more popular and they become more expensive, so poor people have either had to move out or their offspring haven't been able to afford to stay in the city. They tend to move to these poor suburbs. It's very apparent in city in metro areas like San Francisco and New York. Absolutely. A lot of poor suburban areas. Very true in Detroit. Now, even in Detroit, African American poor African Americans <clears throat> that can afford to move out <coughs> are having trouble moving to the better suburbs. They end up in these poor suburbs where there's a lot of social problems and unrest and even strife. So <clears throat> suburbs are changing. The demographic profile of suburbs are changing. Some are right. going in is bifurcating. Some suburbs are getting super wealthy and some are getting very poor. It's interesting. Everything, I think very- suburban slums quite soon, not just the real slums where you have, you know, discarded dishwashers and cars sitting in the front yards of these big mansions that will be subdivided, just like urban mansions were subdivided into smaller units. You're going to see McMansions subdivided, but they're not as well built as those old urban mansions. I mean, that rock is going to rot out as well as, you know, structurally they're not so sound. So I think suburban slums are going to end up being worse than urban slums. That'd be a very stark picture, but I, I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, and it's, you know, I know personally in my practice, I've toured a lot of those larger suburb homes and I would agree that they're not built to what they cost. Yeah. They're not very well built. And, I don't think you see many of them getting subdivided yet, but it's going to happen. That point makes me think of something else, and maybe I'm taking it a little literally, but it was a very interesting case you make in the book, in I believe chapter seven, the idea that for us to use our cities the most successfully, it's more, we have to use it more of a shared city as opposed to a city kind of divided by everyone's ownership. I don't think yeah. we're first. This is like, a, interesting and 
somewhat problematic subject. Um, there's a whole chapter on the sharing city. Yeah, we need to start sharing assets. We're literally people share cars, uh, share vacations homes. Airbnb is a good example yes. of the sharing economy. We're going to see more and more of that because we have a limited number of assets and assets are expensive and it's good to share them. I mean, lawnmowers, people are starting to share lawnmowers, even in suburbia and things like that. I think it makes complete sense. Um, Absolutely. So the sharing economy uh, is going to increase, but it's problematic because, you know, we're so in love with ownership. Uh, <laughs> things, you know, we own more than anybody on the planet per capita. And so, we're sort of attached. I mean, Buddhism would be the first to say how overly attached we are to our material possessions. So sharing has that hurdle to overcome. And there's some legal issues with sharing that have to be dealt with. Um, it can get complicated legally. Um, and people who get the book can, can read more about some of the challenges, but some of the great opportunities and benefits and ultimately the necessity of sharing. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of benefits and there are some challenges, but kind of the biggest challenge isn't the implementation of it. It's just literally human nature. Same with the idea of what, what is the biggest challenge in using our cities effectively. I'll take a quote right from, you know, we are asking humans to do something unnatural to them, constrain their own growth. You know, so it's kind of that's the biggest challenge is the whole mentality. Yeah, I mean, we're, it's, we're just, it's beaten into us. <laughs> growth, growth, growth. Capitalism is all about growing, growing, growing. Mm -hmm. That's got to change. I think our capitalist system is, I don't want to get rid of it because it produces lots of good things, but I want to see it heavily reformed. And I think if we elect the right guy in two weeks, um, we're going to see some of that reform needed the green new deal etc so anyway i i uh it, big big challenges ahead which we're gonna have to rise to we've risen to challenges like this before we'll do it again absolutely and so you know just to kind of summarize again so i appreciate you know all the elaboration and so before we kind of get into the closing, you know, I'd be curious, you know, it sounds like you have a lot going on. What have you been up to since the book's been released? It's been out about a year and a half. Uh, I think I've done about, uh, this might be my seventh sort of webinar, although they're usually Zoom with, with audio and visual. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a lot of speaking. I'm teaching again, even though I just retired. Um, I'm not going to write another book. Is that, that right? That book was about, if you add it all up, about 10 years in the making. It's the most heavily researched book I've ever done. 750 footnotes tells you just how much research <laughs> went into it. Um, and I, it's very carefully written and I think pretty legible. I hope readers will find it. I'm usually told that my writing is is understandable compared to many academics anyway absolutely 
You know, I, well, yeah. So, yes, I would agree. I took a lot from it. And even without that qualifier, but when you had the qualifier of academic writing, yes, it's significantly further yeah. ahead. Yeah, I really worked hard on it. And so I'm not going to do another one of those books. It's, that's a very long project. But I'm writing lots of articles, um, book chapters I still write. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm starting to take it easy a bit. I'm doing things like jigsaw puzzles. Is that right? Well, because of COVID, you know, we're more homebound. So, yes. Uh, and I'm starting to cook a little bit, something I'm pathetically bad at. Yeah. And uh, there's some yard work here. And so, so I, you know, retirement is changing things, but I'll continue to write. I'm no longer really designing. My new medium of expression is writing. Oh, great. Well, I guess if you ever change your mind, when you write another book, hopefully we can get you back on the show. I want to thank yeah. you again for taking the time to speak with me and our audience. Well, it's and been a pleasure, and I hope people not only listen to this, but are inclined and moved to buy the book and to read it. Um, absolutely. And, and for those, you might, you might want to advertise. I can send you an email address where you can buy the book at a discount. Um, That'd be great. I'll, I'll send that to you, and uh, you might add that in somehow because a twenty-five percent discount helps. That's pretty significant, absolutely. And for those who needed well, the reminder, maybe it's twenty percent. Anyway, it's a help. <laughs> yeah. The, the book is The Urban Fix, Resilient Cities and the War Against Climate Change, Heat Islands and Overpopulation. And to those of you listening, thank you and have a great day. 